Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Show. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by Operate, a new tech startup investment and company building platform based right here in Southern California. We've got a number of amazing founders already in the Operate family. If you're looking for help with your startup, if you're looking for opportunities to work with the next generation of high growth companies or want to be part of this startup community, go to operatestudio.com to learn more. I'm super excited to have uh, a friend from the other coast joining me today on the show. John Deary is with me. And before we get to hear from John, let me give you a little bit of introduction to him. He's currently the president at the Center for American Entrepreneurship in Washington, D.C. He founded this organization a few years ago in 2017 as a nonpartisan research policy and advocacy organization. And as you might imagine, it's focused on this really critical need we have in our country for more entrepreneurs. Um, CAE, as it's also known, their mission is to engage our policymakers in Washington and also state and local levels and really orienting them to how critical and important it is that we have more entrepreneurs, more startups, more innovation happening in our economy to really drive the economic growth and job creation that is more important now during COVID than ever. And John was ahead of it even a few years ago. Uh, and he really is focused on how do we significantly increase things like business formation and survival once it's been formed and ultimately growth of those companies. Uh, prior to that, he was the CEO of the Financial Services Forum, which is a policy organization that was formed by the CEOs of the largest financial services firms uh, in the US. So certainly a great background for things like economic development and how money flows uh, in our economy. And then prior to that, he was part of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for almost 10 years, including many as an officer of the bank. So he just has an amazing background on both the business side of the world, the policy side of the world, the economics, of our macro and micro economies. And we haven't discussed it previously, but he also attended uh, a rival school of mine uh, in my home state of Indiana. Uh, he went to Notre Dame. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I find that mo many Notre Dame grads don't even claim Indiana as the, the home of Notre Dame because it's such a national school. But for those who don't know, it's based in, in Indiana. Uh, thankfully, we don't play them in football, but we tend to uh, get our way with them in basketball uh, on the times that we get to, to play them. John, it's great to have you here this morning. I really appreciate the invitation, Kerry. And uh, um, uh, yes, I, I, I think we'll have to stick to football instead of basketball when we talk about our two schools. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. You know, it's, we, we each get our, our uh, platform to stand on, right? But, you know, my Hoosiers did get a great upset. Uh, over the weekend, the biggest, uh, yes. biggest win in like 30 years. So uh, both very proud and storied uh, schools when, when, right. it, when it comes to both sports. That's right. That's right. So I gave a brief intro uh, to CAE. Can you just give sort of an orientation to my audience? You know, how important and really even when we connected, how unprecedented it is to have an organization like this and what you're doing in Washington? 
Um, sure. And thank you again for the invitation. This is a great podcast and it's, and it's an honor to be here. Um, so yes, I, uh, uh, where CA came from, you mentioned that I had been at a, that my, my prior life, and in fact, the vast majority of my career uh, was in banking and finance. And prior to CA, I was at an organization called the, uh, the, um, uh, the Financial Services Forum, which was a financial and economic policy group comprised of the CEOs of the major financial institutions. So I was right in the thick of the uh, uh, 2008 financial crisis. In, in the run-up to it, the crisis itself, and then the policy response to the crisis. I was the policy director at uh, the Financial Services Forum. Mm. Um, so I had a ringside seat. And coming out of that crisis, of course, if I can take you back to uh, 2008, 9, 10, uh, the real priority in Washington after that terrible experience was how do we accelerate economic growth and job creation after all mm -hmm. of the damage? Mm -hmm. um, and um, the, uh, the economy started growing again in, uh, in 2009, the spring of 2009. So by the summer of 2011, the economy had been growing for a couple of years, but very slowly, only about 2%, and job mm -hmm. creation was still north of 9%. 25 million Americans were still unemployed mm -hmm. uh, in the summer of 2011. Uh, in economic growth and job creation, as you may recall, were, were the big topics of conversation in the 2012 mm -hmm. uh, presidential election. Um, and I began a project at the forum uh, to come up with new ways of accelerating economic growth and job creation because in Washington, policymakers had really thrown the kitchen sink at the problem. I mean, they'd done everything that they could possibly think of uh, legislatively and uh, uh, in terms of regulation. The Federal Reserve, of course, engaged massively and controversially with you know three or four rounds of quantitative easing, 0% interest rates for five years. We just couldn't accelerate economic growth and job creation beyond a crawl. Uh, and, and you could sort of feel this collective shrug in Washington, like, you know, we're out of ideas. Uh, and so uh, I began a, a long project uh, on trying to come up with new ideas to accelerate economic growth and job creation. And, and I had no experience in innovation and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. It was not my background. Mm -hmm. um, and just nor really of the of the financial institutions that you nor, were right, representing right. as well, right? Uh, exactly. Um, and so I started following my nose through the research that was new at the time, uh, st starting about ten or twelve years ago, that indicated from a number of different vantage points how critical new businesses, mm -hmm. entrepreneurship startups are to innovation, economic growth, job creation. It's really the bullseye of mm -hmm. the policy target, if those are the things that, that you're interested in. Uh, and this was a revelation to me. I had never heard this before. Mm. Uh, I didn't believe it, frankly. Mm. Uh, I got in touch with a number of the academics and practitioners who were documenting uh, that reality in their in their research. I eventually came to believe it. And then the really intriguing part about it, Carrie, was that um, uh, part of the work around entrepreneurship, what was showing that entrepreneurship had been in decline for four decades in the United States, w which was a complete newsflash to me. I thought to myself, how could that possibly be the case with all the attention on Silicon mm -hmm. Valley and Shark exactly. Tank and, you know, um, but uh, numbers uh, data, don't lie, right? Like that's the I think the 
the narrative versus the numbers can right and the numbers were very numbers. clear and people mm-hmm. you know another guest that you had on just recently ian hathaway uh, was one of the people along with bob Lighton and ed prescott and john haltwanger and a whole bunch of people around the country who were documenting this reality of a decline in entrepreneurship not just nationally but uh, uh regionally and in terms of most uh, metro areas around the country so I became incredibly intrigued by the following question. If it's true that startups and entrepreneurship are the key to innovation, economic growth, and job creation, and if it's true that entrepreneurship has been in decline for four decades, might that be the reason or the explanation why notwithstanding the Herculean policy response that policymakers were implementing in Washington, Mm -hmm. why we were not getting the kind of traction that we thought that we would get. In other words, policymakers were digging in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started. And the way that I decided to get at uh, that, that question, uh, particularly the question of why is entrepreneurship in decline, a colleague and I decided probably the best way to figure out you know, what's going on would be to get out of Washington, travel the country, and ask entrepreneurs, what's in your way? What's going on? And that's what we decided to do. We uh, hit the road and spent the summer of 2011 on the road, mm. uh, conducting entrepreneur uh, roundtables with entrepreneurs around the country. And that um, experience changed my life, changed the, the trajectory of my career. I ended up uh, writing a book about it, uh, uh, about all of the things that entrepreneurs had told us uh, that are in their way and a number of their ideas for what policymakers could do about it. And it was when I was finishing that book that it occurred to me, my God, there's no organization in Washington, D.C. for me to hand mm-hmm. these ideas to mm-hmm. and to work with policymakers on this important agenda. Obviously, we need that organization, so I decided to start it. And that's where CAE came from. Amazing. Thank you for that history lesson. That is, that's just so, I mean, so many places I need to take this. So I, that was a great jumping off point. Let's start. I mean, we haven't had historically that I know of a lot of entrepreneurs, people who've lived this in our legislative bodies in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. Is that is that accurate? Yes, it is. There there have been a few um, mm-hmm. in recent years. Uh, uh, Jared Polis from Colorado, who's mm-hmm. now actually yeah. the governor mm-hmm. of Colorado, yeah. and a close friend. And he's doing great work there. He's doing great work. He's a close friend of Brad Feld, as you might mm-hmm. recall. They started mm-hmm. Techstars together, I think, in 1996. Yep. I might be going a little too far back, but but in any case. Um, and then uh, John Delaney uh, from Maryland was uh, also a very successful entrepreneur. He ran for president uh, this time around, as you might recall. Um, but both of them are now gone uh, from Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, w- there is a new entrepreneur and a new m- member of Congress who we've gotten to know very well at CAE and have done some important w- work with. That's Dean Phillips of Minnesota, mm-hmm. who started a number of companies um, and then ran his family um, uh, ice cream uh, business uh, mm-hmm. and is an entrepreneur and understands issues of entrepreneurship. He was elected in 2018 and in just two years has emerged uh, as one of the most active and important uh, members of Congress on issues pertaining to entrepreneurship, which just shows you how important it is to have them in Congress. Sure. He was incredibly important, as you might recall earlier this year, Kerry, uh, you know, as the COVID-related crisis hit when Congress passed the CARES Act and the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, PPP, mm-hmm. there were a number of problems or aspects of PPP 
that were problematic from the standpoint of startups, especially venture-backed startups, yep. Yep. Um, uh, in terms of being eligible and having access to that uh, uh, that assistance. Uh, Dean was incredibly helpful in in getting clarity on a number of those issues. He wrote a letter to the Treasury Department and and the SBA that 54 or 55 other uh, members of the House signed, uh, seeking clarity on the um, uh, uh, on the affiliation rule you know, associated with, with venture-backed uh, startups. He is the lead house sponsor of a piece of legislation that we've been very active on called the New Business Preservation Act, which mm -hmm. we can talk about mm -hmm. uh, if you'd like. And then he's also uh, the, uh, the Democratic sponsor on a more recent piece of legislation called the Ignite American uh, Innovation Act, which would change the tax code uh, to help startups uh, uh, monetize s some of the unique tax assets like net operating losses and R&D mm -hmm. tax uh, credits mm -hmm. that, that are sort of trapped on their balance sheet because they're pre-revenue. Yeah. And this would be a way of, of getting badly uh, needed capital to start up struggling amid COVID. So mm -hmm. perfect example of a guy who's an entrepreneur by background, comes into Congress and makes a major impact in just a couple of years. That's awesome. That's a, and that's a great story. Do you see a trend in any way? Like how do we attract more people like that to uh, take up this cause and and become legislators because I think to your point it's it's critical and and you know standing alone is hard and as as uh, you can say you're somebody who's gotten that active in just the first term yeah um, is awesome but also a little bit scary because you probably at many times he's thinking I'm I'm shouting in the wind. Yeah. Uh, at all these other people, right? And I mean, to me, the, the beauty of being an entrepreneur, which I identify that I have been since my youth, is just, it's problem solving. Right. In a really yeah. meaningful, measured way. And I feel like that's a key part of the value. You're solving problems for the world. And, and usually you think you've got a more novel, uh, impactful way to do it, which is why you're, you're driven to go make it a reality. So. How do we get more more folks like him in there? I, no, I think it's a very important point, both from the standpoint of having people in Congress who understand entrepreneurship and the unique contribution that startups make uh, to the economy, which most policymakers in Washington mm -hmm. do not know. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, we spend and have spent probably the majority of our time in our first you know, three years underway educating policymakers about, for example, the difference between new businesses and existing small businesses. Sure. They tend to think of them the same, mm -hmm. um, that they don't understand the difference between the two and why the policy needs are different. Uh, so very important to have more folks in Congress uh, who yes. understand entrepreneurship and startups. But, but also your point about problem solving, very well taken. Obviously, we need lots more people uh, in Congress who are problem solvers and are, and are, are practical, are less ideological and want to mm. solve the nation's problems. And Dean is certainly somebody who um, I think epitomizes that and is, and is great to have in Congress. You know, the problem with getting more folks like that into, in, into government, into Congress is, you know, historically, as you think about it, entrepreneurs, I think, although uh, many of them on social issues might be both conservative or liberal. Uh, when it comes to the government or policy, that they tend to be uh, uh, more of a libertarian stripe. Yeah, Stay away right. from my business. Yep. You know, the better, you know, the farther away from government and policy and regulation and all that crap that I can be, uh, the better. Sure. Um, that 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 has historically been the case, but I think it's changing. I think I think entrepreneurs 
and the innovation community is waking up to the reality that uh, a, a government and policy matters yeah. uh, to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I also think the policymakers finally, you know, perhaps I'd like to think with the help of CAE, are waking up to, uh, uh, to the reality, especially as the big challenges facing the country are economic growth, job creation, opportunity, rising wages, mm-hmm. all of these things. How important startups, entrepreneurship, innovation are to those objectives. So, so we're uh, living in a mm-hmm. period of great opportunity and promise, I think, for these two incredibly important aspects of our country entrepreneurs, innovators, and policymakers to start to learn more mm-hmm. about each other and work together in more effective ways. Steve Case is another person yeah. who has made this case in his book, The Third Wave. Uh, uh, he devotes an entire chapter to this and how important policy and government has become to entrepreneurship and innovation. And that's the, that's the uh, a major uh, reason why we started CAE, is to serve as a liaise between the innovation and entrepreneurship community, it was astonishing that there was no organization in Washington to do that. Uh, I mean, there's right. nor the caucuses, con- as you told me that you know there were no never in the history of our Congress were there even caucuses around this topic area. Yes, and there are you know caucuses uh, uh, for those who who don't know caucuses are best best thought of as kind of a club you know in mm-hmm. in Congress either the House or the Senate it's it's a subject matter around which uh, uh, members of Congress who are interested in a particular topic can organize you know they can mm-hmm. hold hearings or you know it's, it's less formal than hearings but they can do events uh, they can do inquiries you know, they can have speeches and the you know the really important part about the caucuses is that it's a natural constituency for sponsors for legislation mm-hmm. associated mm-hmm. with that area and there are, there are caucuses so caucuses are a very informal but very important part of the policy making machinery on the hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are hundreds of them, hundreds and hundreds of caucuses in Congress. I mean, on very obscure topics. Two of my favorites are the River Trade Caucus, <laughs> and then and then my 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 all-time favorite is the Unexploded Ordnance Caucus. Oh. Okay, so it just makes the point that there's a caucus yeah. for everything under the sun. Astonishingly, there had never been a caucus an entrepreneurship caucus in either the House or the Senate. Amazing. We changed that last year, and there's now a Senate entrepreneurship caucus with about 15 senators as members. Amy Klobuchar is the Democratic co-chair. Tim Scott is the Republican co-chair. Mm-hmm. And then that was launched in March of last year, and then the House entrepreneurship caucus was launched in October. So now we have these incredibly important frameworks mm-hmm. and constituencies of members that we can use to drive entrepreneurship policy. So we're, we're, we're right at the very beginning of what I think will be a very productive period of entrepreneurship related policymaking. And of course, COVID only makes that all the more urgent. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I wanna you know, just for a second, explore this topic of you know, how, um, how the, you know, I'll call it the influence of uh, Washington D.C. because of the lack of representation. I mean, you have the, um, you know, Chamber of Commerce and and some of these groups, and you know, my my family who had a small business for a long, long time, as as we talked about, well over a hundred years. You know, we're we're members of various groups. Uh, you know, National Federation of Independent Businesses and and things like mm-hmm. that, but is you really look at some of the challenges, I mean, you talk about, you know, policy and, and regulation, 
I, I look at what's happened. I mean, think, take COVID as an example, and you've seen huge share gains by these large companies that, yeah. that could afford to navigate um, the challenges, whether those challenges were financial, whether those challenges were regulatory uh, or situational, such as, hey, you know, the state, the local municipality is shutting us down for now, whatever it may be. And so as I look back across you know, the last couple of decades, I look and I say, you know, I know the, the big companies love to complain about the overreach of uh, the government, but they, they're the ones that are set up to pay people to deal with it. Yeah. The, the, the early stage businesses, right? And whether that's a small business, like the one that I grew up in, which was small for its entire 146 year life, or the small business that is new, and very capital, you know, attempting to be capital efficient, but under-resourced and has to deal with some of these things early in its life um, that it just doesn't have the wherewithal to deal with. I think those are the kinds of things that have really stunted uh, the starts, right? That that has led people to go, you know, it's just going to be way too hard for me to compete in these first few cycles and I don't know if I have the stomach for it, so I'll just stick it out in this job that yeah. probably isn't enriching or self-actualizing me in the best possible way. But it's almost like this human psychology that I feel like we have people that um, you know are on the margin who are very capable yet have... Uh, either gotten you know golden handcuffed or feel like the system is really set up against the bold brash entrepreneur, and the only ones left to to start things are the ones that are just borderline crazy or radical like me that go I just don't you know I have to go do it differently because right. I just see so many problems in the world that need to be solved in better ways. Yeah, so how no, I think. You know, it, it, yeah, we we just I think we've set a system up that is just inherently flawed in so many places, and I think people are smart enough to see that. Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. It 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 shouldn't be a surprise that when we have a you know we have um, a democratic system, a representation system, uh, policymakers are supposed to be and are you know for, uh, for the most part are, are responsive to those who who petition them mm-hmm. who bring their grievances and their problems before them and say hey we have this problem and you need to deal with with this um and that's good but you're quite right that uh that that also has an inherent bias for incumbents and for larger incumbents right. uh who are represented by are well uh, represented in washington by organizations like the uh, the U.S. Chamber, like mm-hmm. uh, NFIB, and there's nothing wrong with those organizations. Sure. They're all fine and they do great yeah. work. But entrepreneurs, by their very nature, don't have the because they're new and they're taking yeah. enormous risks right. and all their time and capital and and, yeah. and energy doers. and focus yeah. go, have to go into their businesses because starting and growing a business is risky. You can't do it halfway. You have to do it 110%. They don't have the time or the capital, the wherewithal or the interest to organize and advocate on, be- mm-hmm. on their behalf in Washington. Surprise, surprise, what you get by that arrangement is you get a system, both mm-hmm. economic and political, mm-hmm. that is tipped in favor of incumbents. 
Um, and, and, and again, that was part of the reason why we launched the Center for American Entrepreneurship. It is not a coincidence in our view that in circumstances where entrepreneurship was utterly not on the radar screen in Washington and the non-existence of an entrepreneurship caucus in either chamber of Congress is a perfect example of that. It is not a coincidence that in those types of circumstances where policymakers are not even thinking about uh, letting alone addressing the unique needs of startups and entrepreneurs, that entrepreneurship in the, in, in the United States is not doing well in recent years. And as a result, we have been stuck as a country in very long period of subpar economic growth. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the American economy grew at about three and a half percent a year on a real basis uh, annually on average, uh, mm -hmm. not every year, some years were faster, some were slower, but we grew at an average annual rate of about three and a half percent from the end of World War II through 2000. We have not grown at 3% or better. So we've been stuck in the twos yeah. or less since 2005. Every year, right? Yeah. Since 2005 mm -hmm. and on a year over year basis, yeah. the economy has not grown at 3% or better in 15 years. Yep. It is not a coincidence that that is happening at a time when entrepreneurship is in decline. That's right. So if we want to get back to the kind of economy that is growing at the, at the, at the rate that we need it to grow in order to produce the jobs, the, the, uh, the rising wages, the opportunity to narrow the wealth and income gaps, uh, to defeat poverty, et cetera, et cetera, all these great social, econ uh, social economic challenges facing the uh, country, we've got to get back to public policy focused on where economic growth comes from Mm -hmm. And that's entrepreneurship and innovation. And so that's our job. Yeah, that's uh, so powerful. So I want to I give you two examples, and I'd love your reaction to this. Okay, so let's take the, the first COVID example. So COVID hits, the, the Paycheck Protection Program gets mm -hmm. released. We apply for it for our startup. And we have very little payroll history because we're a startup. And we get a, you know, and, and I had sort of three things happen at the same time. I had uh, the newness of the company. I had uh, investors who were ready to come in who got skittish during COVID and walked away. And I had people in process to hire that I couldn't hire because of, of that happening. And so I was in a place where I looked at what was happening. And I said, okay, so people are out of work. I have all kinds of work for people to do, but I lack the capital right now to do that. This program's backward facing. There was no program at the time that, that could address what I was actually in need of. And I think there were a lot of other people like me. And that speaks, in my opinion, to the, the great difference between a startup that wants to get on a rapid growth trajectory and needs that capital up front in order to do so versus this small business. Right. Right. And so how, like, how do we better distinguish those yeah. uh, in, in the, in the policy? Yeah. Well, those structural problems with PPP are a perfect example of how policy is, uh, is tipped in the favor of existing firms and mm -hmm. existing employment and, and not in favor of startups. Now in defense of policymakers, that's a very hard problem to address because sure. you know you, you you can't be 
shoveling uh, money out the door for everybody who comes in and says, Hey, I have a startup idea. And if I just had some, you know, it's, right. it, I totally you know, agree. Yeah. There's, a, there, that's right. there's always the problem of fraud uh, that you yep. have to uh, deal with as a policymaker, but um, there are other ways of, of addressing and, and, and meeting uh, the unique needs of your business and startups. So for example, um, PPP is really not a great vehicle for assisting, especially brand new companies sure, like yours totally was. And there were, and totally there were thousands agree. of them yeah. that had started say in the last year mm -hmm. that didn't have a long history, that didn't have a, a, a history, a, a documentable history of employment, et cetera, et cetera, but were the real thing and had real needs just like all these existing firms. So for example, uh, this bill that I mentioned called the uh, uh, Ignite American Innovation Act, which is designed to change the tax code to allow startups in their very unique pre-revenue mm -hmm. circumstances to monetize, to mm -hmm. cash in, if you yep. will, these identifiable tax assets on their balance sheets, which mm -hmm. are real, even though they're pre-revenue, sure. in order to get capital to those types of business. That's an ingenious, yeah, great. very creative way of targeting startups you know, with a scalpel. Another way of trying to get capital to uh, continue to get capital to startups uh, is to uh, uh, incentivize venture capitalists and angel investors to continue to invest in promising new companies, notwithstanding the uncertainties and challenges of COVID. Yes. And that's the intention of another bill called the New Business Preservation Act, which would offer a one-to-one -one match mm -hmm. of federal dollars with private venture capital or angel uh, capital invested in promising new companies. The effect of that is to, is to incentivize, you know, to try to create more favorable investment circumstances for investors so that you incentivize them to continue doing that critical kind of yeah. investment in new businesses, even during these challenging circumstances of COVID. So, you know, for me, for a policy guy, you know, what makes policy fun is, okay, we have this really yes. complicated problem. How do we address it in a way that, that is going to uh, reflect, you know, the unique uh, nature of the problem and the various uh, dimensions of it? And how do we do as little unintended damage as possible yeah. in the process in terms of screwing up incentives? And, you know, you know how to assist new businesses in the face of the problems of startups, I mean, of COVID, was a classic you know, real public policy challenge uh, uh, because it was complicated. We do have these pending pieces of legislation. My fear is, you know, they haven't uh, been enacted yet, mm -hmm. and the and and the need is huge. That's right. And so it's my hope that speed, both of these yeah, pieces this right. Like we work, I work at a pace that very few people understand. Yeah. Right. Like the speed. The just the I, I call that week months when when I'm recruiting people into my startups. I say, look, we're going to do as much this week as the rest of the world does in a month, and yeah. you need to orient that way and act that way. And that that's how we win, right? Yeah. And and it is like that, you know, to look at what happens in most of the rest of the world, where you feel like you have you know public companies that that look and act in many cases on multi year, or you have. Uh, DC, it it does. Like you can see why entrepreneurs in many cases are just too cynical and disillusioned to feel like they can, they can make a difference. But I have a huge a huge appreciation and heart for the work that you're you're trying to do because yeah. I do recognize how how hard it is. So the other one that I wanted to to raise is, and I don't think we've spent too much time talking about this, is opportunity zone. Mm -hmm. 
And you know, when I uh, was exposed to that, uh, well over now, probably uh, almost two years ago, I looked at that and I said, that is really interesting. Because when I dug deep into it, I saw, okay, this is actually a really well-intended incentive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm based in a place that is just, the, the vast majority of wealth here has been created around real estate. And so I saw this and I said, wow, this is a job creation incentive in the places where we need to create the right kinds of jobs to help really shape the economic mix of these communities. And, you know, to me, the unfortunate thing is it's been sort of seized by the real estate people, not the job creators, even though it was originally, from my perspective, intended to be a job creation vehicle. So we went as far as setting up an opportunity zone fund, putting our venture studio in an opportunity zone with the idea that, hey, we'll we'll incubate jobs and companies in this actual location in this area that desperately needs this to happen. Mm-hmm. And it has really, it's been really disappointing to me because I feel like I don't, I think there has been some unintended uh, reality and that the real estate people took advantage of it. But the the sort of innovator, job creator, entrepreneurs haven't been able to really meaningfully take advantage of what I thought was one of the most interesting pieces of legislation to come out in a long time. What, yes. what, what do you, I mean, in, in reflection, what do you think has been the, I mean, I have a, my own opinions, but what do you think has been the the reason why that hasn't gotten more uh, attention. And, you know, frankly, I look at it right now and go, okay, look at the stock market over the last recovery, six months since that dip. And you go, there's all kinds of capital gains that you would hope people would say, hey, maybe now's the time for me to take some of those and reinvest those into the next generation of, of companies that can create jobs. So like, how do we I guess one is like, what's your reflection on why it's sort of been a failure to launch for its intent? And do you think there's any hope for it? Uh, I agree with you that it was one of the most uh, creative um, uh, and high potential pieces of legislation uh, in years and was, uh, to me, was the most intriguing aspect of the of the recent tax reform, we're very uh, close to and have a great relationship with the group in Washington that was the lead outside group, the Economic Innovation mm-hmm. Group. And mm-hmm. John Letieri is the uh, is the CEO. It's it's an organization um, that was founded by John and Sean Parker, mm-hmm. um, um, and and its principal objective, the organization, was to find ways to get idle capital off the sidelines and into areas of the country mm-hmm. where it can make a difference and. Uh, uh, I'd encourage you to have John uh, on your show sometime to talk um, opportunity sure. zones because he is he is the uh, uh, he is the expert uh, in terms of an outside expert. Um, I think even he would admit that um, uh, that the uh, practical reality of ways in which opportunity zones have sort of unfolded since uh, 2017. Um, I think there have been great successes. Uh, sure isolated successes around yes. the country. Um, uh, but there have been problems and the problems, um, again, you know, this is part of what makes public policy fun, but, um, mm-hmm. 
it's it's very very hard to think through uh, especially tax policy in a way that that is going to have exactly the kind of impact that you hope a lot of the effectiveness of any piece of legislation has to do with the way the regulations the implementing regulations are written and i know that there were many problems with, with the way that treasury wrote those uh, uh, regulations um one of the other you know sort of internal conflicts of the of the legislation as you pointed out is that it includes uh, real estate and i think um, uh, one of the, uh, uh, the difficulties from the standpoint of public policy uh, with that is that it's easier in a tax concept or in a ta tax context to have a quicker payoff yes. in the context of real estate than in the context of new businesses. Because right. new businesses and, take, and the real estate people understand tax, like they and they understand the and they understand are, tax. Yeah, they they i mean they will do i know a bunch of them and they will do yeah. almost anything to delay or avoid tax where we as entrepreneurs we just want to go solve a problem and right. as i've said like we're not going to typically start a company because of a tax incentive right? right but the way i looked at it is okay i mean i've i've had to pay huge tax bills in those years that i've had a big significant success uh in a company it's been, you know, a capital gains event from a company that's had a really successful growth and an exit. And I said, well, that's an interesting incentive to focus in an area and, and create the jobs there. I'll, I'll support that. That, that yeah. makes a ton of sense to me. And I'll, I'll bring the entrepreneurs and, and try and bring the capital together. But I think you, you need more of those connector yeah. Pipes. And uh, yeah. that's where it's been difficult to get that. Uh, yeah. And you know, I think emergency. the, and I think the real estate investors have taken a bit um, uh, of a, of a, an inappropriately short um, mindset. I yeah. mean, if you think about it, if you're investing in real estate, the value of that asset is going to be tremendously enhanced by um, uh uh, economic development in the area around right. your real estate asset, right? So, so if if investors uh, are more patient and and pay more attention to uh, new business creation, entrepreneurship in the areas in which they have real estate assets, and they put their money, or at least part of their money, and their time and their effort into developing the local entrepreneurship and innovation ecosystem, those uh, real estate assets are going to perform far better. That's right. Uh, over time than if you didn't uh, do that. And so I think, I think, you know, there are a lot of aspects of this that I think have led to some of the difficulties, the practical uh, difficulties in the, you know, the initial three years, it's still new uh, legislation. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm very optimistic. I think it can be with the right uh, leadership and perhaps, you know, some regulatory corrections, um, I think it can be a very impactful mm -hmm. uh, piece of public policy. I'm hopeful it will be. Um, I know that the uh, people who were involved, Tim Scott, of course, from South mm -hmm. Carolina, what, what mm -hmm. was the lead uh, congressional sponsor of the bill, uh, and Tim and all the other people, John Leteri, all the other folks who were involved are, are brilliant. Um, um, they were very ambitious. And of course, anytime you do something ambitious, um, it's going to be fraught with, you know, with practical challenges. Yeah, but sure. I'm hopeful that it will uh, it, uh, eventually, and I think it is uh, getting better, and I think it, it, it will over time uh, deliver the kinds of results that that um, uh, the folks who uh, contributed to it envision. I, I sure hope so. You know, I I I, uh, I think the, our approach was this is really interesting. We want to try to be part of this, 
um, in our case, we weren't willing to risk our entire yeah. operation around whether people would buy into it or not. And we've just found thus far, it's been much less resonant than I had hoped. And, you know, I, I want to try, I'm going to definitely try to um, engage John because I think, you know, our view is it, it was beautifully intended and the spirit of it, I thought was fantastic. And yeah. we were totally game for supporting it. Um, even in the spirit of it to the point where, you know, I was even looking at how do I design incentives for these entrepreneurs to potentially give more of the equity pie to the team. And because if the gut, I mean, in theory, if the government is saying, Hey, we're going to give you this great long-term tax benefit for doing this, then how do you share that prosperity with the team, with the community? But how do you, how do you kind of uh, incentivize this, this, multiplicative redistribution, if you will. Like that, that was what I found to be so compelling about it um, yep. in the way it was at least intended. So, um, yeah, and by the I, way, yeah, and, and, and by I'm the way, I'm not a and, policy wonk, but maybe I need to, uh, I need to scratch no, that I think you're a little more. <laughs> I think you're exactly right. And, uh, and I think it, I, I just wanted to point out that the New Business Preservation Act, of which I spoke earlier, we see that bill as being very much thematically consistent with opportunity zones, yeah. because opportunity yeah. zones, of course, are intended to encourage or incentivize investment in, in, in underserved areas by way of the tax code. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the New Business Preservation Act is intended to do exactly the same thing, to encourage investment in startups mm-hmm. in underserved areas of the country. Uh, that is outside of the yeah. three major venture capital centers, uh, uh, which together account for 85% mm-hmm. of venture capital, with the rest of the country having to share the remaining 15%, yep. to incentivize a diversification of that venture capital investment. And so it's our hope that if we can get the New Business Preservation Act passed, Mm -hmm. it will be additional wind in the sails, additional incentives for this kind of more equitably shared or or, uh, evenly distributed uh, uh, innovation-driven prosperity. I'll I'll layer them together here. Right. Well, that's the intention. Sign me up right now. I'm your poster child for how to do that uh, together. Yeah. We're, we're set up ready to go. So I love that. I, I mean, whatever on the, on the record, whatever we can do to support it, we're, we're all in. So. Well, I was very I pleased and, and, and it happened with your help, Carrie. I was very pleased that uh, we at CAE and um, the Orange County uh, CEO uh, Leadership Alliance, as you'll recall, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a letter mm-hmm. uh, on both the Endless Frontier, which is another act mm-hmm. that also has, mm-hmm. has regional implications yep. for innovation, entrepreneurship. Uh, uh, wrote a letter about uh, urging the passage of the Endless Frontier Act and the New Business Preservation Act. Mm-hmm. And we sent that, uh, it was an excellent uh, letter uh, that if people are interested, they can go to uh, CE's website uh, to find it. Uh, was sent to congressional uh, leadership a few months ago. So mm-hmm. um, that kind of activism activating, you know, groups like uh, 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 OCCLA and other groups around the country are, are are what's necessary to really get policymakers' attention and make this stuff happen. Sure, that's that's great. I'm glad you know glad to see that those those progress points are are happening. So, John, you know you've been at this now for a few years. One of the things that I I really like to try to share with my audience is this idea of of learning from mm-hmm. uh, you know somewhat looking backwards. You know, in, in a lot of times in startups, we do this idea of retrospectives. We're sprinting, we end a sprint, we we do a retrospective and say, okay, what went well, what could we do better on the next sprint? 
And so mm -hmm. you're, you're a few years in, as you look back over that, you know, what, what would you have maybe done differently uh, if you, you could rewind back three years that you've learned from, from this journey so far? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's been a remarkable journey. It's very much, even though we're not a business, it's a very mm -hmm. much an entrepreneurial experience. I mean, That's I like right. to call us policypreneurs yes, uh, because we sure. experience, you know, a lot of the same anxieties and, you know, night sweats and terrors mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, of, uh, of a startup entrepreneur. Um, uh, on the substantive side, um, uh, uh, to be perfectly candid, we have have excelled all of our expectations, that's and that's awesome. not because of us. I mean, obviously, we work hard, uh, but I think that we, um, I think that there's a real interest um, in our message and in the in the importance of entrepreneurship, innovations, uh, startups. There's a real interest on both sides of the aisle at both ends of, of Pennsylvania Avenue. Policymakers have been very, very receptive to our story mm -hmm. and our message. Mm -hmm. um, they're interested in economic growth. They're interested in job creation. And so when we have had the chance, and, and we've done a lot of work in this regard and have briefed hundreds of men, uh, members of Congress and started the two caucuses, uh, but the the, uh, the receptivity to our message has been astonishing. Uh, mm -hmm. And that has fueled our ability to be successful on the legislative front, on the leg on on the regulatory front, we, we've been very very pleased with um, what we've been able to accomplish uh, in just 36 months. It's really mm -hmm. quite remarkable. We, we've succeeded with policymakers' help in putting entrepreneurship at the very highest levels of of the nation's policy agenda, and mm -hmm. and and that's fantastic. Absolutely. The 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 one area that has proven extremely challenging for me. Um, is funding the organization. It's more difficult than even I anticipated. Mm -hmm. um, COVID has made it even harder mm -hmm. um, as foundations have pulled back uh, because they're afraid that their grantees won't be able to, to uh, perform mm -hmm. on their grants in, in COVID as, as corporate supporters, you know, uh, responding to the economic pressure points of the COVID crisis have, have scaled back their uh, philanthropic contributions, individuals, the same thing. Um, we tried to begin to pivot to sort of a membership organization type of thing or a fee for service type mm -hmm. of a thing where uh, various constituencies, entrepreneurs themselves, entrepreneurship centers around the country, um, uh, university-based entrepreneurship programs, mm -hmm. uh, state-based innovation and entrepreneurship agencies would all sort of, you know, collectively contribute to CAE to, to you know, support the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of interest in that. We, we started to talk to people about that right before COVID hit. Of course, COVID has, you know, you know everybody is sort of rocked back mm -hmm. on their heels. Um, so, uh, funding the organization, you know, which we always knew, you know, anytime you're trying to fund a nonprofit, it's difficult. Um, many people have stepped up and have, have, have been very generous and we, you know, it's remarkable that we've survived under, uh, these circumstances for three years. But, um, uh, I, I don't know what exactly we could have done differently. I think we had to live through the experience to learn mm -hmm. you know, to your point, mm -hmm. but we have learned a lot about, um, what it takes to, uh, reliably uh, and confidently fund, you know, this important work. Um, we have have never had more than about six or nine months of runway. Mm. So we've always run the organization sort of tactically instead of strategically. Mm -hmm. It would be you, nice. You, we can relate. We can yeah, relate. I'm sure but you I can think, relate. Yeah, Anybody. I, mean, I think it speaks to the reality, right? It's like entrepreneurs right. are in this tenuous position most yeah. of the time, especially in the early days. Those first 36 months, 
like you described, like you, you, your empathy for the oh, challenge yeah. is, is clear. Yeah. And yeah. I think your, your other challenge is that, you know, we as entrepreneurs, uh, we, we probably don't feel represented. We don't, and we don't necessarily feel like we have the means to help where like your former group, you had the, the CEOs of the biggest financial services firms. Let's, let's face it. They have means. Right. They have means in a lot of places and you know, they, they don't have a, in many cases, an incentive to support the people that could potentially disrupt them. Right. 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 It, it, you know, and I've, I've had those conversations with, with CEOs who sort of like, they want to, they're curious about disruption and startups, but they don't, they don't want to fuel it. Right. That, yeah. But what I mean, the, the great value of this experience so far is that, as you just said, we know viscerally, yeah. Yeah. In our guts, you know, I know what it's like to lie in bed at night, stare at the ceiling and, and, and wonder, how am I going to make mm -hmm. payroll next month? I know what that's like. Um, and so and so when we go to the Hill and we talk to policymakers about the urgency, mm -hmm. for example, that of, of startups need for capital and certainty in raising capital, help in raising capital in the midst of COVID, we can talk about that, you, you know, w w with a kind of passion yes. uh, and visceral empathy because we've lived it um, that is necessary to really effectively make the point. Um, and it drives, it drives our energy and the passion uh, with which we you know, try to accomplish our policy objectives on behalf of entrepreneurs because we know what they're going through. Um, yeah. so, um, so in that regard, it's, it's, been, it's been, you know, exactly the same kind of, um, you know, uh, high wire act, but also uh, a great sense of satisfaction in terms of accomplishment. We built something that did not exist before. Mm -hmm. We're making a discernible impact on behalf of entrepreneurs and the and the economy in the country, um, and that is tremendously satisfying. Obviously. Oh, amazing! Yeah, the, I mean, I think, and I think that's what ultimately drives us all as entrepreneurs. You're an entrepreneur. You're, I'm signing you up for the club. <laughs> uh, whether you want to, you know, accept it or not. And no, of course, it's the impact of it. Like that's, that's what ultimately drives us yeah. is, is that opportunity to bring change, bring new value, bring impact to the world. So uh, John, you know, this has been awesome. I, we're going to have to continue this conversation because we need to talk about other things happening like this surge in new business applications. What do we think that means? So we need to schedule more time for a part two. This Happy has been to. a this has been a great start. And uh, I think the you know the audience is going to really appreciate all that that you've shared. So thank you for joining and to be continued very, very soon. Well I really appreciate the invitation and um, and and we so appreciate uh, and want your audience and listeners to know that we're uh, working every day on their behalf. We admire them. They are the true heroes of the American economy. We need them now more than ever. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is an organization in Washington that has your back. It's us. And we encourage them to follow us um, on Twitter and LinkedIn and to get in touch and let us know about the problems that they're experiencing and what we can do to help. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.